Everyone take out your sermon outline. It should say, the subtleties of love and terror. We are in Esther chapter 5 as we go through the book of Esther. Uh, We are uh, approximately halfway now. And uh, if everyone would turn in their Bibles to Esther chapter 5. If you open in the middle, you've probably come to Psalms and you're going to go left. And you'll find Esther. Esther chapter 5, it's 14 verses. Please listen carefully as this is the word of God. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman Come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. The king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is... If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king." Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, sitting in the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, as always, for giving us your word and making us your people. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, as we study this difficult book, we pray that you would give us understanding. Help us to see the big picture of how you work. Remind us that you use sinful people like us to carry out your work, even when we're not sure what to do. Lord, we pray this morning that you would help us to face down our idols and to starve them to death. For this, we need your power and grace. 
By your Spirit, give this to each of us this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. There's an independent short film, which I'm assuming none of you have ever seen, called The Subtleties of Love and Terror. It was made in 2002. It was critically acclaimed, but being a short film, only ran in a number of small art house theaters. It's a classic story of overcoming tragedy. A tragedy is a drama or a literary work in which the main characters uh, are brought to ruin or suffer extreme sorrow, especially as a consequence of some tragic flaw, some moral weakness, or inability to cope with unfavorable circumstances. And that's exactly the situation in this film. Well, I won't go into all the details, the film is dominated by a painful family truth that everyone refuses to accept. And there's two children in this dysfunctional family. And the story comes to a head at a family birthday party. You have a son and a daughter. The daughter is a uh, top university student, and yet she fights hard against this tragic story of her family. On the other side is her brother, and he's fighting just as hard to get everyone to accept their story and to move on. And they have to face the terror of the tragedy amidst the love of the family. So this movie shows you traumatized people at a fancy dinner trying to deal with this impending problem or an impending tragedy. And it could have been taken right out of the book of Esther. In fact, one critic said the movie could have been based on any number of uh, biblical stories that show two people, family members or close friends, struggling to deal with a confrontational situation. From Cain and Abel to Abraham and Lot to Ishmael and Isaac to Jacob and Esau to Joseph and his brothers to Samuel and Saul, Saul and David, David and Jonathan, and on and on and on. And Esther chapter 5 which is our text for this morning, fits right into this category. It's going to deal with traumatized people at a fancy dinner trying to deal with an impending tragedy. We pick up the story of Esther at the beginning of chapter 5. So far, we've seen Esther become queen and Mordecai take a stand against Haman. And while both of these actions look commendable uh, at the outset, they're both filled with selfish, sinful choices that ultimately bring the Jewish people to the brink of destruction. Esther has uh, hidden her faith by neither practicing it or proclaiming it, and Mordecai has revealed his faith by upholding an age-old family grudge. And the result is a decree from the king calling for the slaughter of the Jews throughout the empire. Now, Mordecai has now called on Esther to take a life-or-death risk and approach the king with their predicament. We saw that happen at the high point of the story uh, two weeks ago in Esther chapter 4. We read there uh, the end of Esther 4. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. 
And Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. It's truly a story about the subtleties of love and terror. But God is in it, and we see that continue to be revealed in this chapter. The passage starts with Esther coming before the king with bold reluctance. Bold reluctance. Verses 1 through 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters. While the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room, opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. And then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. Now, it's a little hard for us to imagine the kind of uh, pompous behavior exhibited by Persian royalty. The fact that the queen herself has to fear death for showing up at the king's throne room uninvited demonstrates the height of arrogant power practiced by ancient monarchs. This is no empty threat. There are uh, contemporary depictions of the Persian king, thought to be this king, um, that were excavated at Persepolis, and it shows him seated on a throne, holding a scepter, flanked by various officials, including a soldier with an ax. So apparently, if you came in and you didn't get the scepter, you got the axe. Right then, right there, swift justice, no jury, no trial, no lawyers, none of that stuff. You either got the scepter or the axe, and it was over. And so Esther actually has fairly good reason to be concerned for her life, not only because there's a law forbidding her action, but also because her husband is not known to be calm and reasoned. He's uh, somewhat impulsive, and as we know from chapter 4, it's been 30 days since he's called for his wife. And she has to wonder if she's fallen out of favor, as Queen Vashti did before her. But when uh, King Ahas Urias, or in Greek, King Xerxes, sees her, he extends his golden scepter, meaning she's allowed to approach him. In fact, he seems glad to see her. He asks what she wants. Verse 3, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. Now, I don't think he really means that. This is a figure of speech used in ancient times when a monarch wants to sound especially generous. King Herod, if you remember, made the same offer to uh, his niece Herodias, who opted instead for the head of John the Baptist. <coughs> but on the other hand, it does show us that Xerxes is uh, favorably uh, disposed towards Esther. He extends the golden scepter. She's going to be allowed to live. 
And at this point, we sort of breathe a corporate sigh of relief. You know, the threat of death has been removed. Esther's going to live. So why doesn't Esther just put her request uh, before the king? Well, first of all, she's coming with a pretty big request. She's asking for the reversal of an irreversible law signed by the king himself. The law of the Medes and the Persians, it can't be changed. Once it's signed, that's the way it is. And so she's coming to ask him to reverse an irreversible law. Second, in order to make her identity known, she has to reveal her hidden Jewish identity to make her request known. And there's a possible backlash. If we follow through the chronology of the book of Esther, uh, she's basically hidden this from her husband, that she's actually Jewish, for about five years now. And he might be a little offended to discover that after having been married to her uh, for some time, oh, by the way, I'm Jewish. Um, have no idea how he's going to react again. He's not known for being calm and reasoned. Practically, it's not the right place for her to intercede. No doubt there's other people, other officials serving the king in the throne room. It would have been a breach of etiquette uh, for the queen to make this plea public. You know, uh, maybe she'll break down and start, you know, uh, pleading for her people in the sight of this weeping, pleading woman before the throne might annoy the king. It might make matters worse. Better she should speak to the king in the privacy of her own um, quarters in the palace. I'm sure she has her own massive apartment um, than there in the throne room. The second reason was that she wants Haman there and only Haman when she lays all the facts before the king. With what I think you can only uh, call woman's intuition, she's confident that catching Haman off guard would somehow lead him to admit his guilt and doing something foolish that's going to anger the king. And it turns out, as we'll see over the next several chapters, she's right on both counts. But there's one more reason, one that Esther herself is not even aware of. One more event has to happen before she can share her burden with the king. And it's going to take place that very night. The king will discover that he's never rewarded Mordecai for saving his life five years before. And he's going to rectify that mistake and honor Mordecai, at the same time humiliate Haman. And this experience is going to help prepare the king to hear Esther's petition. So rather than spill the beans right then regarding what's on her heart, she invites the king and his second-in-command to a banquet. And immediately the king accepts the invitation for himself and Haman. One thing we can say with a fair degree of certainty, what she's preparing to ask of the king will be difficult for him to grant. And so it's no wonder she isn't eager to uh, make this appeal. It's going to take something very dramatic and very unusual to deliver the Jews from the danger they're in. It's probably going to take a miracle. It doesn't seem at this point that either Esther or Mordecai particularly believe in miracles. And God will work miracles, but not as a result of the faith of men or the lack of faith. The hand of God should be evident to us in this book, even if it's not expected by our uh, main characters, and even if it's not recognized as such after God delivers his people from death. So Haman and the king come to the banquet, 
And then Esther delays making her request a second time. This time apparently because of fear and meekness. Fear and meekness. Look at verses 6 through 8. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, you notice there's a lot of banquets in Esther. Apparently living at the palace and going to feasts and banquets and drinking lots of wine is just part of the routine. So very much like my house. You know, just part of the routine, living in the palace. So anyways, the king says to Esther, What's your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is... And she stops. Then she says, picking up at verse 8, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request... Let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So here we are, we're at the banquet, they're drinking wine, the king asks Esther again, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. <coughs> Excuse me. And again, he promises her, even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. It seems he's well aware that the banquet itself is not what she wants, but rather a prelude to revealing her request. She obviously has something very important on her mind, something for which she's demonstrated a willingness to risk her life. And in verse 7, this very unique uh, uh, verse here, she begins to reveal her request, and then she stops. Look at verses 7 and 8 carefully. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is... The next word in some translations is this. So in the NIV, that verse reads, Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. But the sentence stops short in the English Standard Version because the word this doesn't appear in the Hebrew and probably doesn't belong. And I believe Esther is interrupting herself just as she is ready to unload and bring her request. And instead, she invites the king and Haman to a second banquet. Verse 8. If I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. Tomorrow I will do as the king has said. He wants to know why she's risked coming to see him in the king's hall, what's on her mind. And he gets the request, another banquet tomorrow. It's fairly risky business here. Vashti said no to the king. We all know what happened to her. Well, Esther now says, basically, wait and see. Why does she reply like that? I mean, we want to know the reason for the delay in making the request to the king to deliver her people from death. And the text actually offers no clue whatsoever as to why she delays. And the reason she delays is not as important as the fact that she does delay. For it's during this delay, the interval between the first and second banquets, that God prepares the king to act as God purposes the king to act. Now, to be fair, I think there's a few possible reasons uh, for the delay for her hesitancy, and I think one of those is simple fear. She's probably very conscious, very aware of the fact um, that she and her husband barely know each other. And the fact that she's hidden from her husband, the king, the fact that she was a Jew, 
which I think was a fairly dangerous thing to do. And she wants to tell the king of the danger that she and her people are facing, but she just loses her nerve. So she invites him to a second banquet the next day, and hopefully by that time she can drum up the courage to tell him. Another possibility, however, is that Esther is playing the king like a fisherman plays a trophy fish. Hard to believe that a woman would actually do this to her husband. And she's good at it. She's taking her time. She's not rushing to reel him uh, into her net, carefully maneuvering him into a position where he would be virtually obligated to grant her request. After all, he's now twice offered to give her up to half the kingdom. And he's going to lose a lot of face if he goes back on a promise that he's repeated publicly several times. And I think she's showing great shrewdness or perhaps artfulness in the way that she handles the king. She's demonstrating the wisdom of Proverbs 25. With patience, a ruler may be persuaded and a soft tongue will break a bone. She knows the king values submissiveness and meekness, particularly in women. So she prefaces her request for a second banquet with phrases like, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, if it pleased the king, making the king feel as if he's still in full control of his fate. She also specifically promises to reveal her request at the second banquet. She appeals to the king's curiosity and sort of tantalizing him with this request for another banquet, and she gets away with it. But she knows there can't be any more delays. She needs to act before the king's curiosity gets the best of them. So she's got to act before that curiosity turns into impatience or anger because the king doesn't play well with others when he's angry. So the story now shifts to Haman and his reaction to all this that's going on. And he has a reaction that's filled with mixed emotions. Haman is the epitome of both pride and prejudice. Pride and prejudice. Look at verse 9, starting there. Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath. So we went from joyful to wrath, just like that. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sat and brought his friends and his wife, uh, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he advanced him above all the officials and servants of the king. So here it's boasting and bragging about how great he is. And then Haman says, verse 12, even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me. So we've been on a high, then to a low, back up, and now we come back down. As long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. You can hear the prejudice come out. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to them, said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high, that's approximately 75 feet. That's a pretty big gallows. Let a gallows 50 feet high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And this idea, idea pleased Haman, and he has the gallows made. So he goes high to low, to high to low, to high. 
We see him leaving the banquet, happy, he's in high spirits, he's on cloud nine. He has been the sole guest of the king and queen, and he's been invited to another banquet the next day. But then you find in the middle of verse nine, that little word, but. But when Haman saw Mordecai, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he's filled with wrath. There's that obstinate Jew again. Everyone else stands when Haman rides by in his chariot. Everyone but Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow for him, refuses to stand up when he comes, refuses to tremble before him, for the most part pretty much ignores him. And suddenly Mordecai is the only person that matters to Haman. His happiness and joy rapidly transformed into rage and despair by the sight of this one man and the perceived slight to his significance represented by Mordecai's refusal to stand and honor Haman. And Haman's pride is so great it causes this ridiculous overreaction. Now, Scripture tells us a lot about pride. Proverbs 16 tells us that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. 1 Corinthians 10 warns us, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. And Galatians 6 reminds us, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So somehow, Haman restrains himself and goes home. By the time he gets home, he's back on his game. He's repairing his dented ego by gathering his friends together with his wife, and he starts boasting to them about his vast wealth, about how many sons he has. Presumably his wife already knows that. Um, and how the king has elevated him above everyone else and how he's the only one that gets invited to the banquets. And yet he's still unhappy. Verse 13, yet all this is worth nothing to me as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. But thankfully, his wife and his friends come to his rescue. I mean, what are friends for? They tell him, let a gallows be built 75 feet high and get the king to hang Mordecai. And that'll make you joyful. And then you can go to the feast. So hang your enemy and you'll be happy and go on. So in the course of what's probably a couple hours, Mordecai's gone from high spirits to rage to prideful boasting to deep depression to delight. And you just can't help but stop and do a little, you know, psychological, spiritual analysis of this guy, Haman. I mean, he's like a ping pong ball or a roller coaster. You probably should go to your Bible study, you know. Because on Monday, he's, who could stand being married to me? And on Tuesday, he's like, how blessed they are to be married to me. And he should go. Anyway, so we see Esther's taking the initiative, doing all this stuff. At the same time, the initiative is being taken away from Haman. And increasingly, this evil man is being marginalized. His whole world revolves around his fragile ego. And the smallest perceived threat is enough to just throw him out into a tailspin. He presents himself in public as this powerful, confident man. But like so many egomaniacs, he's deeply insecure. And what he craves more than anything else is not just significance, but to be seen as significant. 
It's not enough that he is significant. He wants everybody to see him that way. Public respect and admiration is his idol. And when his idol is fed, he feels good. He's pleased with himself. And when his idol is challenged, it drives him into just rage and wrath and despair. And even though the power doesn't change, he still possesses unparalleled power in the kingdom, second only to the king, and it's not enough. And even though Mordecai's disregard for his position has no actual effect on his power, he's still incensed by Mordecai's refusal to stand up, his refusal to bow, his refusal to just acknowledge him. And Haman's emotional strings are being pulled by his own idolatry of public respect. And like I said, when that idol is fed, he feels great. And when that idol is challenged, he just flies into a rage, lashes out in anger, and he tries to feed his idol himself through his boasting. Haman is a case study of what happens in our hearts when our idols are challenged. I mean, there's obviously a void at the core uh, of this man's being that I don't think any amount of prestige is going to fill. The reality, he's a shell of a man, an empty suit. And so we finish the chapter with this picture of this man who's both confident and confused, proud but paranoid, grateful but greedy. And his selfishness and idolatry have essentially left him a mess. If only idolatry affected Haman that way. Because the reality is that idolatry affects all of us. And I think in general, I'm going to speak just about guys because it's what I know. Um, there are pretty much three things that make a guy stupid. Okay, there's probably more than three, but there's at least these three. And they're the three great idols of our time, money, sex, and power. Today, money is an idol. We live in an atmosphere of materialism. We all want more stuff because it's all about me. Now, to be honest, money has always been an idol. Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So the love of money can lead you away from faith. And that was true in Paul's day. It was true in Haman's day. It's still true in our day. The second great idol of our day is sex, or probably more accurately, a relationship with a member of the opposite sex that fulfills me, pleases me, and makes me happy because it's all about me. And an atmosphere of sensuality as the solution to all issues just totally pervades our culture. Paul addresses this to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians. He says, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of their impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. The Apostle Peter also wrote, 2 Peter, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Again, we have a sin that affects truth, that affects faith. There's people that will blaspheme truth because of this great idol. And that was true in Peter and Paul's day. It's true in Haman's day. It's still true today. The third great idol of our day is power. 
The well-known saying of Lord Acton, uh, I think, is still valid, that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Haman and uh, uh, the king are uh, good examples of that. Those who have power want more power. They can't wait to demonstrate their power, and generally they'll react violently towards anyone who tries to diminish their power. Again, because it's all about me. See, the common theme here in idolatry and who the real idol is. The real idol isn't money, sex, and power. The real idol is myself. But all three of these idols, pretty much, I think they're front and center in the book of Esther. In fact, sometimes it seems like they're actually the main characters. If you remember back that we went through Daniel, idolatry seemed to be more blatant when we went through the book of Daniel. Remember, there was a big, giant, golden statue, and everybody was told to come uh, worship it. Uh, Daniel 3, uh, the herald proclaimed, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. We know that story. We know how it worked out. But it's different here in Esther. Here in Esther, idolatry is much more subtle. And I think it's because it's just accepted. It's just accepted. It's part and parcel of the world that they live in. Of course people will compromise their beliefs in the pursuit of materialism. Of course people will compromise their beliefs in the pursuit of sensuality. And of course people will compromise their beliefs in the pursuit of power. That's just how the world works. And many people still believe that today. And apparently Haman believed it in his day. Now here in the book of Esther, Haman is for the most part, beyond help. But we're not. And our hearts face the same temptations to bow to idols. Think for a moment about what it is that causes you to be angry all out of proportion. On the other hand, what is it that causes you to feel a strong sense of achievement? More than likely, one of your idols is either being threatened or applauded. And our strong emotional reactions are clues enabling us to read our own hearts. How often have we said to ourselves, and we may not say this consciously or certainly out loud, but the effect of how we're feeling and, and what we're thinking is, essentially, I know that God loves me and has made me a joint heir with Christ, yet all this is worth nothing to me as long as I don't have fill in the blank. Financial security, a better paying job, respect from peers, a new and better relationship, affirmation at work. We all have blanks to fill. We all have hearts full of idols. And when we seek to feed our idols rather than starving them, we end up emptier than ever and in even greater bondage than we were before. We can't play Haman's game. We have to get off that emotional roller coaster that's created by pride and insecurity. Someone once said, we're all faced with a series of great opportunities brilliantly disguised as impossible situations. I couldn't find out who said that, but I thought it was a great quote. 
And that's what we have here in the book of Esther. And that's what we have in our life. Who knows whether we've arrived where we are for such a time as this. Who knows what God is up to. We can't be sure. He often doesn't reveal to us the details of his purposes for our life. We've seen that God uses Esther's subtlety in this passage, but he also uses Mordecai's stubbornness. He also uses Haman's selfishness to bring each character to the exact place where he wants them to be. And regardless of her intent, Esther's invitation to Haman uh, puffs up his pride. Mordecai's refusal to bow wounds his ego. And the counsel of his wife and friends lead him to seek an audience with the king. All of these events are necessary for the unfolding of God's plan. And you have to notice here, in this case, in the book of Esther, God's plan is being worked out without thunder and lightning. There's no parting of the sea to save his people. No one's being delivered from a fiery furnace. Uh, no one's being miraculously kept alive in the lion's den. God's work here is every bit as subtle as Esther's. It proceeds by quietly and unnoticeably nudging each of the characters to behave exactly in accord with their own desires, while at the same time they do exactly what he has decreed. We see that with King Ahasuerus. The law stipulated that no one could approach the king unless invited by him. Those who came uninvited were put to death unless the king extends his scepter and graciously spares their life. Contrast that king with our king. Salvation is made possible solely by God, who grants sinful, undeserving men and women that they can draw near to him. When the reality is, if you think about it, because we're sinners, that should mean death for us. Because sin separates men from God. God cannot dwell in the presence of sinful men. Sinners can't approach a holy God. We can't approach God apart from his grace and granting that we might come into his presence. And we can only do this because he's extended himself to us in the coming of Jesus Christ. In the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we can then approach God boldly. Approaching God, we deserve death. But God makes it possible that we can approach God without the fear of death. See, our entry into the heavenly court is free, but it wasn't bought cheaply. As sinners, death is still required before we can enter into the presence of an all-holy God and King. But God holds out the golden scepter of favor to us only because the fierce rod of his judgment has already fallen upon Christ. Our peace with God, therefore, is paid for and removed all threat of eternal risk from our lives for those who are called according to his purpose. And we need that same eternal perspective to face down our idols. We're going to start a campaign next week for the advancement of the ministry, to multiply the ministry of the church. And I think we're going to have difficulty being able to make lifestyle changes without realizing the need to starve our idols. We're going to have to face our own idols. And by God's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, then we'll be able to discern what we can let go of. 
And the obstacles to letting go of our idols will be pride and insecurity, selfishness and stubbornness because Haman and Mordecai are alive and well in each one of our hearts. And even though this story took place some 2,500 years ago, it's still very much about us and how much grace we really need. That's the challenge it's putting before us. This week, are we going to face down our idols or are we going to feed them? Are we going to love them or starve them? It's going to take grace to do the right thing. Think about that. Pray for that. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess as we move through the book of Esther, uh, we, we sort of do that with a sense of fear. Because we know you've hidden things here that are difficult for us to understand, and yet we're starting to sense something of your heart in the story. Help us to see this as a story about us. Help us to understand we're just as stubborn as Mordecai and we're just as selfish as Haman. But Father, it's a relief to remember that you know exactly what you're doing with your people. You know the plans that you have for us, both as individuals and, and as a church. There's no happenstance in heaven. You don't make up things as you go along. You're not a God who reacts out of irritation, but one who acts out of great affection. There's no coincidences, just providences. Stuff doesn't just happen, and sovereignty is always happening. Lord, thank you most of all that we have a Savior who paid the price that we needed to pay, that we might be able to come into your presence without fear of death. And for that, we are truly grateful. We ask that your Spirit work powerfully in our hearts and minds this week as we face down our idols and begin to let go of them and starve them and get away from them. We ask that you would do this for us in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.